Join me this morning in Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, we will be looking at verses 25 through 35 as we finish out uh, chapter 14 of the Gospel of Luke. The title of this morning's sermon is Counting the Cost. Our key words for our worshipers in training are disciple, cost, and renounce. A lady named Annie Dillard is the author of a very fascinating essay that's entitled An Expedition to the Pole. And she describes in this essay what's been called the Franklin Expedition of 1845. It's a tragic, very unfortunate story. And it captures the reality of man's frequent inability to see much further than the end of his very own nose. She writes this, In 1845, Sir John Franklin and 138 officers and men embarked from England to find the Northwest Passage across the high Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. They sailed in two three-masted ships. Each sailing vessel carried an auxiliary steam engine and a 12-day supply of coal for the entire projected two- or three-years voyage. Instead of additional coal, each ship made room for a 1,200-volume library, a hand organ, china place settings for officers and men, cut glass wine goblets, and sterling silver flatware. The officers' sterling silver knives, forks, and spoons were particularly interesting. The silver was of ornate Victorian design, very heavy at the handles and richly patterned. Engraved on the handles were the individual officers' initials and family crests. The expedition carried no special clothing for the Arctic, only the uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. The ships set out in high dudgeon amid enormous glory and fanfare. Two months later, a British whaling captain met the two ships in Lancaster Sound. He reported back to England of the high spirits of officers and men. He was the last European to see any of them alive. Years later, many groups of Inuit, Eskimos, had found artwork involving various still-living or dead members of the Franklin Expedition. Some had glimpsed, for instance, men pushing and pulling a wooden boat across the ice. Some had found at a place called Starvation Cove this boat or a similar one and the remains of the 35 men who had been dragging it. At Terror Bay, the Inuit found a tent on the ice and in it, 30 bodies. At Simpson Strait, some Inuit had seen a very odd sight. The pack ice pierced by three protruding wooden masts of a ship. For 20 years, search parties recovered skeletons from all over the frozen sea. Accompanying one clump of frozen bodies were place settings of sterling silver flatware engraved with their initials and family crests. Another search party found two skeletons in a boat on a sledge. They had hauled the boat 65 miles. With the two skeletons were some chocolate, some guns, some tea, and a great deal of table silver. Many miles south of these two was another skeleton alone. This was a frozen officer. The skeleton was in uniform, trousers and jacket, a fine blue cloth edged with silk braid with sleeves slashed with bearing five covered buttons each, 
and over this uniform the dead man had worn a blue greatcoat with a black silk neckerchief. This was the Franklin Expedition. Sir John Franklin and 138 men perished because they underestimated the requirements of their Arctic exploration. They ignorantly imagined that they were going on a cruise, that they should be as comfortable as they were in their English officers' club. And so they exchanged the necessities like coal and food and clothing for luxuries. And their ignorance led to their death. Now, the Franklin Expedition is a great illustration of Jesus' concern in the text that we will be looking at this morning. We're picking up where we left off several weeks ago in the Gospel of Luke, looking at verses 25 through 35 of chapter 14. Now, Jesus, if you recall, at this point has set his face toward Jerusalem. He is resolutely and steadfastly moving toward the very place in which he will be giving his life. Remember back in chapter 13 and verse 33, he said, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus, the great prophet, priest, and king, must not only go to Jerusalem, he must also die there as a ransom for many. So now we see many instances where Jesus is beginning to prepare his followers, preparing his disciples for all that was going to lie ahead. And at this point in the game, there were still thousands of people following Jesus around. Very few of them, though, were actually committed. And Jesus began to speak more and more frequently, more clearly about his coming death the people continued to conduct themselves as though there was a great celebration that lie ahead. They were all like members of the Franklin Expedition, prepared for a magnificent party when only death awaited. However, this morning we're going to see Jesus offering what Franklin failed to offer. And that is a word of preparation for all that was ahead a cautionary statement regarding the reality of what they were to face if they continued to follow Jesus. Jesus is providing the people with the unforgettable terms of what it costs to be a true disciple. And any would-be disciple who truly listened to Jesus' words would understand the cost to be far greater than anything they had initially assumed. In fact, the the cost is so great that the most valued possessions of a disciple would be placed on the table of sacrifice if he or she were to truly render proper and faithful allegiance to Jesus Christ. However, the benefits of all of this are well worth it. A disciple may need to leave his silver flatware and crystal goblets behind, but he will have enough coal to get him through the journey. Let's look together beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, 
He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, as has been the case for quite some time now, as we've looked through the Gospel of Luke, there are many crowds of people following Jesus. It is, to say the least, a mixed multitude of people, not unlike those Israelites who left Egypt. Some were faithful followers of God. Some were curious onlookers. Others were simply seeking to benefit from all that God was graciously giving in Jesus. And Jesus reminds us frequently, whoever the people of God are and wherever the people of God are, there's going to be a mixture. Those who are faithful to Jesus' teaching and those who have completely different motives. So we have to keep in mind here that Jesus is addressing a very large crowd, a massive crowd, and all of them have very different motives. And most of them are eventually going to reject the very teaching that Jesus is presenting to them. And here in this passage, we see some of the most shocking statements in all of Scripture. Let's take them one at a time. First, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, Jesus' clear intent here is to startle the consciences of his hearers. The question is, did Jesus really commend an unqualified hatred for our parents, our children, our siblings? and ourselves, if we are to be his disciples. Well, in order to answer that, we must, as ourselves, ask, does Jesus ever contradict himself? And for that matter, does the word of God ever contradict itself? The answer, of course, is a resounding no. So what does Jesus mean? Because he's also identified for us the importance of honoring our father and our mother, perfect harmony with the fifth commandment. The Lord calls husbands to love their wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Jesus himself loved little children in such a way that he was said to have taken them in his arms, to put his hands on them and to bless them. Also, Jesus very clearly teaches us the importance of being reconciled to one another, to love our enemies, and indeed to, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, as Christ Jesus has loved us. So with these realities in mind, good biblical interpretation leads us to ask the question, what does Jesus mean by this? Because he's clearly not making an unqualified statement that we should just hate our families. What Jesus is saying, paradoxically, is that our love for him should be so great and so pervasive that our natural inclination to love ourselves and to love our families should pale in comparison to our love for him. In other words, we are to take everything and subordinate it to him. Even our own being, our own relationships with those we love the most, they all come second to our love and commitment to Jesus Christ. 
He is to be our first and our primary loyalty. All other relationships take a back seat to our love for Jesus. And if they do not, Jesus says very clearly, we are not his disciples. He tells the crowds, he's telling us, do you think you are my disciples? Do you think you are going to follow me? Well, then you will love me so much that your love for your family seems like hatred in comparison. Your very life is of no value to you if you are my disciples. Otherwise, don't pretend to follow me. So you see, even though what Jesus is saying needs to be qualified and compared to the rest of what he said, Jesus' words should still astonish us and shock us. It should cause us to pause and question our devotion to Jesus Christ alone. And let's not be mistaken here. Jesus is taking aim at the very place where so many of us fall short because we've turned good and right relationships into replacements for Jesus Christ himself. There's a very interesting reality here. We live in a very secular, anti-family culture that not only seeks to discourage a biblical family structure, but even encourages the elimination of marriage and parenting through aggressive homosexual activism and abortion. So Christians have responded, and, and rightfully so, by emphasizing the importance of marriage and family, childbearing and childrearing, and the biblical parenting and educating of our children. These are good and proper things for Christians. And God is pleased when we live in each of them rightly. However, many Christians have not viewed them rightly. Now, most of us are tempted, and many of us actually do, Love our wives, our husbands, our parents, and our children more than we love Christ. And while the thought of such a claim may cause you to immediately deny the reality of this in your own life, perhaps you above all should consider where your greatest allegiances lie. Do you rationalize the missing of worship on the Lord's day? for your child's sporting event, your family vacation, your preparation of a meal for your parents' visit, a road trip to see your in-laws. You see, it's easy for us to think it's only one Sunday. But that one Sunday has a cumulative effect when it is coupled with all of the other one Sundays. We become very careless in the ordering of our lives when it comes to the worship of God and a committed emphasis to the means of grace in our personal, our family lives. What do you think your children will grow up to say? I never missed a soccer tournament. Or will they grow up to say, no matter what was going on in life, we were always gathered with God's people And we were always engaged in family worship. Those of you who are empty nesters or soon to be there, will your trips to see your children and your grandchildren, will those become the focal point of life and your schedule? Do we as people live from one family event to the next instead of living from one Lord's Day to the next? 
one private or family worship time to the next. Brothers and sisters, when we put the athletic, intellectual, cultural, artistic, or social benefits of ourselves, our children, or our grandchildren before our spiritual well-being, we have severely missed the mark. So you see, it's more prevalent than we think. We may very well, using the words of Jesus, actually convey that we hate God and love our families disproportionately. It may very well reveal the fact that we may not be Jesus' disciples at all. You see, the paradox to all of this is that we properly love our families by putting them second to God. Because our love for God will enable us to love everyone else with a greater love. So I know, I know that there will come a time when my children don't understand why they can't listen to the same music or watch the same movies or engage in some of the same events as their friends. Or when my parents won't like the fact that if they visit us, when we are gathering with our church family for worship, that they won't have the priority. Or that my brother will be uncomfortable in my home because we will still do family worship when he visits. Or that friends and neighbors and co-workers just won't understand why all of us are so committed to studying the scriptures. And as a result... We put aside some of our hobbies and our recreations from time to time. And even that during our vacations that we will engage in Lord's Day worship with the people of God so that we can focus our eyes and our hearts on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who deserves the one who should receive our greatest allegiance, our our most precious affections, no matter what else is going on. But you see, we love all of these people, all of the people we're closest to. We love them all more when we first turn ourselves onto God. The disciples of Jesus are the best lovers of God. We are the best family. We are the best friends. We are the best neighbors. We are the best co-workers. When we live first unto God and then for the sake of others. You see, disciples of Jesus must always be ready to give second place to everything and everyone else. And the relational cost of discipleship, it seems harsh at first. It's very difficult Sometimes it's very, very uncomfortable. But in a right perspective, with the right priority, this focuses our lives and makes them richer and fuller. Matthew Henry comments, Disciples of Jesus must be willing to quit that which was very dear and therefore must come to him thoroughly weaned from all their creature comforts and dead to them so as cheerfully to part with them rather than quit their interest in Christ. A man is not sincere unless he love Christ better than all the things in this world and be willing to part with that which he may and must leave, either as a sacrifice, when Christ may be glorified by our parting with it, or as a temptation, when by our parting with it, 
we are put into a better capacity of serving Christ. Now, the second shocking revelation of Jesus here is this. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, without question, this may have been one of the most puzzling statements of Jesus to his hearers. Why? Well, because he had not yet died on the cross. Therefore, the significance of the cross was not known to all of those who would hear in light of Jesus' sacrificial death. To those who heard what Jesus had to say, the cross was only known as a vile, excruciating instrument of death. And so Jesus is telling them, whoever does not hoist up his electric chair and follow me cannot be my disciple. A Christian discipleship is a series of deaths. A Christian is constantly dying day by day by day. Disciples follow Christ on the path of self-denial. Disciples embrace suffering as a reality of life and as a gift from God. As Paul prayed, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The life of a disciple is not an easy life. C.S. Lewis had it right when he wrote, The Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self. I've come to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. You see, so much of our lives are spent seeking to find out how it is that we can go on a treacherous journey following Christ while simultaneously taking our custom-made flatware and large libraries along with us. We seek to live the Christian life like the Franklin Expedition. We want all of the benefits of the Christian life without any of the suffering that comes with it. But true discipleship, Jesus is clear, true discipleship requires everything. And there are no exceptions. No one has ever become a true disciple of Jesus Christ and simply lived a life of ease. You will face opposition. You will face rejection. You will lose friends. You will be disregarded by family members. You will be confronted with difficult situations that require you to do what's right instead of what's comfortable. And you are not exempt from the results of living in a fallen world, a world of brokenness and disease and suffering and pain. But you see, in all of this discomfort, in the life of a disciple of Jesus, something beautiful emerges. 
The challenge of hating all others before Christ and taking up our cross to follow him begins in time to create a new disciple, a man or a woman who is, who is sharp and pungent. A salty Christian who brings tang and, and flavor to life. Everyone benefits, not the least of which is the hated family. But before we get to the outcome, Jesus provides us with two short parables to illustrate the importance of counting the cost. The first one begins in verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So the first parable Jesus tells is about a man building a tower. Now, surely no wise man would begin to build a tower without first determining that he will be able to afford to finish it. It's foolish to set out on a costly endeavor without being first assured of the final cost that will be settled. The necessity exists then for careful calculation, to sit down, to figure out what it's going to take. What is the cost? You see, this is where the Franklin expedition fell apart completely. There were virtually no thoughts given to what it would take to make it across the Arctic. They simply knew that along the way, they wanted all of their luxuries with them. The upside was that the failure of the Franklin expedition and their failure to calculate the cost paved the way for the success of future expedition. Those who didn't count the cost served as an example to others who did that very thing. And in the following decades, no less than 30 ships set sail looking for traces of the expedition with careful calculations. And ultimately, they mapped the Arctic and found the Northwest Passage and developed a technology to conquer the Arctic. But we look back at something like that expedition and we think, how foolish, how silly, how unfortunate and needless. As Jesus said of the tower builder in verse 30, this man began to build and was not able to finish. It was a mockery. It defied all true and sound wisdom. Jesus' second parable here provides a similar lesson. Look at verse 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. It's important to know before you begin if you will win or if you will lose. A wise king does not enter a battle without first counting the cost. And likewise, a true disciple of Christ does not seek to follow Christ without first counting the cost of doing so. You see, Jesus' lesson here is intended for those multitudes who were surrounding our Lord. 
and the multitudes who blindly claim to follow Christ today without thought and without consideration. Jesus' point here is very clear. It costs a great deal to be a Christian. It's a cheap and easy work to simply go to church each week and to use biblical language in our conversation, but there's no change in our hearts. But to hear the voice of Christ in the Word of God, to follow Christ, to believe on Christ, to confess Christ, to give our lives all to Christ... It requires much denial of self. It will cost us the the comforts that we have in our sin. It will shred us of the cloak of self-righteousness that we so easily hide behind. It will steal away the comfort and conformity to all that the world has set before us. It will strip us of all of the pleasures that we seek after instead of Christ. All, all of it must be given up. And we must count this cost because when we are pressed into the corner and our lives are on the line, we must know, we must know and believe and trust and be assured in the fact that our Savior has been crucified. Should we expect anything less in our own lives? You see, Jesus' intention is to keep us from following him lightly or inconsiderately. To keep us from simply feeling like we love Jesus. Or keep us from temporarily getting excited about Jesus. But when temptation comes, when trials come, we just fall away. One of the greatest travesties of Christianity has been the pervasive influence of what has become known as easy believism. Christianity has been presented to the masses as that which simply requires a yes or a no on our part. Just check the box and decide if you want to be saved by God, to have joy, to have heaven, to have all the treasures of Jesus. Just bow your head, raise your hand, and simply say a prayer, and your life will be better forever. And the unfortunate result has been a people who are built up in self-deception. They're encouraged to think they are converted, when in reality they are not following Christ at all. Their feelings are thought to be true faith. Their convictions are assumed to be grace. But you see, not once does Jesus say that life as a Christian in this world would be filled with ease and comfort and happiness and prosperity. There's a great reason why Jesus raises a warning voice and bids us all to count the cost. It's a dangerous and very difficult life. But it's certainly not without reward. Now, there are some of you here this morning who do not follow Christ. You may think you're a Christian. You may very well know you're not a Christian. Either way, the condition of your heart is the same. You are lost. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. And I would not be doing you any favors if I simply called on you today to say a few words and go through a few actions so that we could all say that you're now part of God's family and you can go on living as you please. 
Uh, The command from Jesus is that you repent of your sin, you believe on Christ, and in believing in Christ, you become a new creation. Your life is changed. Your heart, your affections, all that you are is new. The heart of stone is removed and replaced with the heart of flesh. And when you do this, truly and savingly, everything changes. Now, eternal life is indeed a free gift. Salvation cannot be earned with good deeds. It cannot be secured with money. It has already been bought by Jesus Christ, who paid the ransom with his blood. He has purchased full atonement for all who believe. There is nothing left to pay. There is no possibility that our own works can be meritorious before God. But that does not mean that there's no cost in terms of salvation's impact on a sinner's life. You see, salvation is both free and very, very costly. With eternal life comes immediate death to self. Paul writes in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, this call to repentance is the call to exchange all that we are for all that He is. It's a demand for obedience to Christ, who said, if you love me, you will follow my commandments. It is an unconditional surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. True saving faith in Jesus Christ produces a new heart. It's humble. It is submissive. It is obedient. And as one grows in Christ, that obedience grows deeper. And the genuine believer who has counted the cost continues to abandon everything to the lordship of Jesus. And so to you who do not rest in Jesus Christ, I commend him to you. The cost is great, but the reward of eternal union and communion with him is far greater than all that this world has to offer. You've searched. You've spent your whole life searching for that which will satisfy you. I know that about you. And everything comes up short. Everything comes up short. Look to Christ. Trust in Him. Follow Him. Rest in Him. Come with us, the people of God. By all means, journey with us in this life onto Christ. But please, count the cost. Why? Why? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 33. He says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We can think of it this way. Every one of you who does not say goodbye to all that he has cannot be a disciple of mine. When we value family or things above Christ, we are not disciples of Christ. We are disciples of our family or of our things. Can we truly say to Jesus, all I have is yours? Do you value Christ as the greatest, most valued treasure in all of life? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
You see, Jesus isn't calling us to live lives of poverty and homelessness. He's calling us to live lives of trust and devotion to him alone. A life of contentment, a life of faithfulness, a life knowing that no matter our circumstances, he is with us. He will provide for us. He will care for us. And the worst thing that can happen in this life is that it will come to an end and we will go to be with Christ for eternity. None of our lives are complete and fulfilling when we put our hope in a happy family. When we put all of our eggs in the basket of a child who gets to have every experience we always wanted to have. There is no fulfillment in the end of pleasing our parents to the extent of neglecting what the Lord calls us to do. Our lives are complete and fulfilling when we are willing to give up not only all of our stuff and not only our relationships with others, but our very lives for the sake of being followers of Jesus Christ. We cannot hold the world and all that it offers along with holding Christ and think that we are being faithful. If we do not renounce all that we have in following him, In the end, it's not simply that our lives will be less fulfilled. It is that we cannot be his disciples at all. And Jesus ends with these words in verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The necessity of counting the costs is enforced by a picture of the consequences of neglecting to do so. Jesus is speaking of a man who has once made a profession of Christ, but he's afterwards gone back from it. It's like salt that has lost its taste. Such salt is completely useless. It's no use to the soil. It's not even any use to the manure pile. Just throw it away. Yet the state of that salt is a clear indication of he who walks away from Jesus. No wonder our Lord Jesus Christ has said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, what he's saying is a hard word. It has a very difficult reality tied to it. And only those with new ears to hear in Jesus Christ will receive the word of Christ and will not reject it. The truth which our Lord brings out in this place is very painful. But it's very useful. It's very needful to be known. No man is in so dangerous a state as he who has professed to love the truth and has afterwards fallen away from his profession and gone back to the world. John tells us they went out from us because they were never of us. And Jesus says it seemed that they were salt, but they lost their saltiness. You can tell such a man nothing that he does not already know. You can show him no doctrine that he has not already heard and understood. He has not sinned in ignorance like many do. He has gone away from Christ with his eyes wide open. His case is desperate. 
He is a man who frivolously sought to walk with Christ, but he never counted the cost before setting out on the journey. It was too much. He was not willing to pay the cost. And so the question is, are you? Are you willing to pick up your cross daily to follow Christ, to die to self day by day by day, to count everyone and everything as secondary to Jesus Christ? Are you, Christian, are you living a life that is salty and useful? Or are you seeking the comforts of the world while simultaneously seeking to hold on to Christ? There are undoubtedly going to be many losses as we walk through this life with Jesus. They come sometimes daily. But you see, the Christian life is not mainly about loss. It's mainly about gain. The writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You see, it's all about timing. Did Jesus suffer more than you and I will ever know in this life? Yes, more than any man will ever know. But you see, he did it with the joy that was set before him. It was only a matter of timing. If you see things with the eyes of God, there is a vapor's breath of loss and pain, and then everlasting joy. Paul reminds us that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing, not even worth mentioning when we look at the glory that will be revealed to the children of God. So while you're counting the cost, remember this, that the reward in Jesus Christ is far greater than anything you will ever give up in following him. Because the reward is Jesus himself, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, the one who gave all that we might live. Jesus, who is the lover of our souls. Jesus, who is our advocate, our mediator, our savior, our Lord, and our closest and most reliable friend. He's worth everything. Are we willing to count the cost, to die to self, and to follow him daily that we might live.